You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Well, amen, and you can be seated. I'm so glad to have you. Welcome today. We are so grateful that you're here. I'll tell you, it blesses me weekly to be here with you. And so if, um, if today's your first time, I want to welcome you specifically. If you're new around here, I want to welcome you specifically. And uh, praise God that you're here because that means he's at work in your life, okay? And I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would reveal to you the glory of his son Jesus Christ, that your eyes would be opened, that your hearts would be softened, that your mind would understand understand, especially now as we hear from his word. I pray as Ephesians 1, 17 through 18 says, and Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. You got eyes in your heart. Do you know that? And I pray that they would be enlightened to see his truth and uh, that, that you, he'd give you ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to know him, right? Knowing him, that's the most important thing for us in this life. So let's get to know him. Let's open up our Bibles, our prized possession. Open up this book of the treasure, the book about the treasure to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, um, that's where we'll be. And while we're there, we know that Luke, the great physician, right, has been establishing the evidence of Jesus as the Messiah. He told Theophilus, right, Theophilus, that this was his purpose. Well, in the beginning, like on the very onset, here's what he said the purpose was. He told Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, he says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's why he's writing. He wants to, to give us certainty about Jesus Christ, who he is. And so after this, in Luke chapter 1, this is where the story begins. The account, right? The very next verse after you see this, I love it, because just like in a good story, after he gives his purpose, he says, now in the days of Herod, right? And the story just begins like any good story, and we're underway. Here's the account of the Messiah. And in fact, Luke is not the only one giving us this account of the Messiah. All of Scripture is. Do you know that? Jesus said in 539, look at this. You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Like, let me find this eternal life. And he says, it is they that bear witness about me. I'm the point of all the scriptures, right? And so we see this from Genesis to Revelation. We see the story climaxing in the Gospels, right? That Jesus is the Son of God. And he came to save those who would believe in his name, even you. Do you know that? And that's why he came. So let this be the aim. This is the aim of all of scripture, right? To know Jesus. And so let this be the aim of all of your life. 
to know Jesus. Is that the aim of all of your life? To know Jesus. And so Luke, as we've been discussing the importance of witnesses in our previous weeks, is giving testimony, witness to who Jesus is, that these people would believe and listen and so believe, receive eternal life, right? We might consider this old news sometimes, like, oh yeah, I know this stuff. I know who Jesus is. I got this thing under wraps. But listen, you got to think about how important this is for the first century of receivers of this letter, to whom this is who you must believe in to have eternal life, right? This is who you got to believe in. So they got to see that this Jesus is the real deal. The son of God who came to earth to become fully man to pay for our sins. And you got to see that too. You see, God loves the world so much that he implores them. He implores you. He implores us to believe in his son. And listen, if you're a Christian, this is still the most important thing for you to believe in who Jesus is for salvation and for sanctification. That means as you grow in becoming more like him. This is how we grow. When we fix our eyes upon Jesus day after day after day, this is why we got four books about who he is, right? And they all say basically the same thing. God wants to say like, listen, in case you're tempted to go off into the other stuff, focus on my son. This is what Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne. So listen, Luke gives us this testimony of this man, Jesus, the Son of God, became fully man to display who he was so that people would believe and therefore receive salvation. So here's what we've gotten a glimpse of in Luke, that he's really a man. Do you know that? And this is, in, uh, this is absolutely essential, that he really became a man. He really became a human being. So listen, Jesus, to pay for our sins, would need to live a perfect human life on our behalf, fulfilling the law in every respect on our behalf. He'd have to be tempted in every way as we are, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, and yet be without sin. He'd have to literally die on our behalf and physically be raised from the dead on our behalf. He had to be fully human. And the scripture tells us that he was, right? Check this out. He had a human body, John 1, 14. And the word became what? He became a man. He was born, Luke 2, 7 tells us. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And he grew, as we see in Luke 2, 40. Look, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus got tired, right? John 4, 6 tells us, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. Do you know he got thirsty, right? This is also t- shown to us in John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst, right? That means he's thirsty. I know you don't go around saying, I thirst, right? But he's thirsty. He also got hungry. Matthew 4, 2 tells us, after fasting 40 days and 40, not- 40 nights, he was hungry. I'd be hungry too, right? And of course, listen, he died. A physical real death. Luke 23, 46. And having said this, he breathed his last. He had lungs. And then he resurrected bodily, as we see in Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet? That is I, myself. Touch me. See, for spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And so this is so important. This is so essential for us to see. And Luke has been establishing this, that Jesus has become fully human, right? His humanity is evident through his physical, but not only his physical, as I just mentioned. You can see his emotional, his mental. He had a heart. He cared. He cried, right? He loved, and he became like us. And, and obviously, all those are, in, are, are us being made in the image of him initially. So listen, this is 
essential to believe. So essential to believe, in case you're wondering if this really is essential to believe, in 2 John, verse 7, like there's no chapters in 2 John, so it's just 2 John, verse 7, only one chapter basically. Here's what it says. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. And guess, this is what the deceivers are trying to do. Look at this. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the what? In the flesh. As this one, such one, is a deceiver and the Antichrist. And so listen, one of the main ploys of Satan himself is to tell you Jesus Christ really did not become human. Because if he did it, then none of this makes sense, right? So Luke is giving us this account to his testimony. We're going to see his explicit teaching very soon, right? You're going to see this. It's going to be wonderful as we move into his explicit teaching. But first, we must establish that he really became a man. But Luke is not only giving us uh, evidence to his humanity, he's giving evidence to his deity, So for salvation, it is necessary for you to believe that Jesus became a man, but not only a man, it is necessary for you to believe that Jesus is divine, that he's the son of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe that he really is the divine son of God? We have seen this from witness after witness, testimony after testimony in Luke's gospel, and he continues to witness Jesus himself now about himself in his ministry. Like, Jesus, who are you witnessing about? Myself, right? That's what he's doing in his ministry. Like, what's the crux of your ministry, Jesus? Me, right? He's advancing himself. So in this gospel, he's showing us his divinity, the authority of his command we've seen, the authority of his teaching, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his divine mercy. Jesus is himself establishing himself as the son of God, right? And throughout all of these characteristics, listen, out of all of the displays of divinity, today we find ourselves observing one of the most important displays. One of the most important characteristics. Now, this is huge. Jesus today displays to us that he indeed is the Son of God in the display that he has the authority to forgive sin. Today, Jesus is going to prove that he's the Son of God in proving that he is the authority to forgive sins. This is, an, this is essential. This is huge. Listen, Jesus can forgive sin. Do you know that? He can forgive you of all your sins. He's got the authority to do so. I love that because we don't normally think about authority and forgiveness. We normally think about compassion and forgiveness. But listen, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only one capable of authoritatively saying to you, listen, son, daughter, your sins, I declare, are forgiven. That's authority. And you want that authority on your side. And so Jesus is going to show this to us today. Jesus has displayed so many characteristics of his divinity, and now here he's taken another step in his authority to forgive sins. This is what he came on earth to do. The people's sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. Not only divine mercy as we saw last week, not only divine power as we saw last week, but the authority to forgive sins. This is what Jesus is going to display to us today, his divinity through the display of his authority to forgive sins. And as we see this, as he displays this to us, I want to pray. I want to pray that you would come and find forgiveness for your sins. Listen, church, come, find forgiveness for your sins. He can forgive you of all your sins. Maybe your life is full of sin. Maybe your life is just absolutely riddled with sin. 
Maybe from corner to corner of your life, it looks nothing like a clean house. It looks everything everything like a messy house that is just riddled and full of sin. And I want to pray that you would come and find forgiveness in the one who has the authority to give it, Jesus Christ. He's willing to forgive you. And maybe you have lingering sins. Maybe you're a Christian and you have lingering sins, right? And Satan's schemes have been to keep you down with shame. I want to pray that you would come and find forgiveness once again in Jesus Christ. He's got the authority to forgive you. And maybe you're not even sure that you believe in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you even don't perceive a need for him. Like, why do I need forgiveness? And I want to pray that you would come to him and find forgiveness of your sins. Because look, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And so I want to pray that you would embrace Jesus for forgiveness. And I want to pray that you, in all of your sin, would cry out to Jesus, the divine Son of God, who is about to prove to us that he has the authority to forgive sin, and you would find forgiveness for all of your sins. Let's pray. Lord, you alone have authority to forgive us of our sins, and oh, how that authority makes us tremble with joy. We tremble with joy. And your authority, your God, the divine one. And you have all authority on earth to forgive us our sins. We know this climax is in your work in the cross and what you paid for our sins. And God, I pray for the people in this room. I pray that no matter where their lives are at, no matter how much sin is there, no matter if they've come to you once or have come to you a thousand times or have never come at all, that everyone in this room today would cry out to you for the forgiveness that you offer for all of their sins. And we'd walk away free people, proclaiming, shouting to the rooftops, glorifying God and telling everybody around us that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive them of their sins too. Show us today in your word, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Luke chapter 5. Hopefully you're already there, verses 17 through 26. Y'all ready? Here we go. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his, uh, with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Right? That's an authoritative statement. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them and seized them all. And they glorified God. 
and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Okay, time for eyes on the text. Let's fall in love with this thing. Last week, Jesus displays his, divine, uh, his divinity through his display of divine mercy and divine power. This week, Jesus displaying his divinity through his authority to forgive sins. Three points of the story. First, what we see is that Jesus is distinguished in having divine power and divine mercy to heal. Jesus is distinguished in having divine mercy and divine power to heal. Now, this is important for us to say because Luke chooses to carry on the theme from last week. He just chooses to do so, okay? So it's important for us to talk about, and it's going to set us up for what we see next in point number two. But listen, Jesus is distinguished in having divine mercy and divine power to heal. And I ask you, from seeing what we've seen so far in this week, in these weeks, is he distinguished in your life? From what you've seen of him, just as these people have seen it of him, has he become the distinguished one who has divine mercy and divine power, right? This is what he has become in the eyes of these people. As we start the story, we see that Jesus is already clearly distinguished as the divine one with divine mercy and divine power to heal, right? And so out of the display of this, last week we saw Jesus, he withdrew to a desolate place. Look at verse 16. He withdraws. And then he goes, we see uh, from that place into verse 17, one of these days. And before we see that, it's essential for us to see also that he was in a city. Remember in verse, six, uh, verse 12, up from last week, that he was in a city. We see that he was in a city. This was important for us to understand how desperate the leprous man was, that he actually, actually came into a city to find Jesus right? He wasn't supposed to do that. And so this city was probably near Capernaum and he withdrew. We see in verse 17, again, one of those days. So listen, Luke doesn't tell us exactly the time, but Luke tells us that our locale around Capernaum is probably accurate. And he tells us because we see the same account in Mark chapter two. And he tells us even more clearly, look at this. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, this is the exact same account of the same story, just in Mark. It was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Same story. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing in to him a paralytic carried by four men. This is the exact same account. Listen, and we see this. And so that we don't know the time, listen, we know the place. And why is this important? Because it's so interesting. Capernaum, it became Jesus' home base for adult life and ministry. Did you know that? This has become Jesus' home. And what we see in Matthew chapter 4 tells us that clearly. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went where? He lived in Capernaum, by the sea. This is the, this is the place in which his home base would be. But even more so, look, as we saw the cross-reference of Mark, the report went out that Jesus was where? At home. He was at home. And many there were to gather together there. So listen, there was no more room, not even at the door, it says. He was preaching to them, and they came to him bringing a paralytic. So this looks like, this might not just be Capernaum, but this might be Jesus' home, where they're at right now. Now, this is crazy. Because we see in one sense, Jesus had no place to lay his head. So maybe he was staying with Simon Peter, right? They got bunk beds. He's in there too. We know his home was in Capernaum. But at least this is the place in which Jesus was staying. This is what we know about this story. So this is probably the house or the, the dwelling place of Jesus. And look how great this makes this story. Because look at all the people who are coming to his home. They're about to tear the roof off of his home, literally, right? Like they're about to literally take the roof off of his home. This shows his mercy. 
This shows his hospitality. This shows him welcoming those who were sick. They weren't even afraid if they took the roof off that he'd yell with annoyance, right? They just were like, let's come to him. He's obviously welcoming us in. This is so welcoming. And so we see this. People felt the freedom to even take pieces off the roof. They obviously weren't afraid of Jesus like showing some kind of annoyance, right? Like, what are you doing here, guys? Like, get out of here. I don't want my alone time, right? Jesus is not saying that. And so they're packing in. Jesus is obviously distinct at this point as one who has divine mercy and divine power to heal. And verse 17, look at this. He was teaching, which Mark told us he was doing and which what we see is the main task of Jesus's ministry. The hospitality and the home were merely a vehicle for him to teach the scriptures about himself. And so listen, this should be the same that's true for us. Listen, this is a small point for us to get, but our homes, our hospitality are merely vehicles for us to share Jesus with people. For us to share the scriptures with people, do we look at our homes and our houses and our places of residence or whatever it might be, our places of work like this? All of our culture, I pray, would find our homes, our cars, our belongings as mere vehicles to get the gospel out rather than viewing these things as treasures to hoard and to flaunt, right? Everything on earth has been given by us by God to advance his kingdom and not hoard for our glory. And this is what Jesus is doing. So look at this, verse 17. He's teaching. Pharisees, teachers of the law are sitting there, which tells us something very particular that Jesus had quite the reputation by now, right? He's pretty famous. People knew who Jesus was at this point. If in verse 17, we see this is true, Pharisees and teachers of the law, let's look at it, are coming from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. This is giving us the insight into Jesus's widespread fame. He's a distinguished one. He has shown who he is through his divinity, and now people are saying, oh yeah, this one has divine mercy, this one has divine power to heal. But many people are not believing he's the son of God. Now listen, Pharisees, what do you know about them? Pharisees took their religion pretty seriously right? Like they really did. They had a high anxiety about keeping the law and about not breaking God's commandments, about keeping the law of Moses specifically. They had pretty high anxiety about it, right? So that they think they can hold to it, which is ironic, but Jesus, because Jesus is about to tell them that he forgives sins, which they might not even think that they have, right? Something they won't see a need for. And so listen, here's what happened. All of this is around their safeguarding of keeping the commandments. All of this stress, anxiety they feel, and they built up these rules and regulations. Here's how the progression worked. And unfortunately, as they progressed with extreme versions of rules and regulations to keep their religion, something actually happened. Actually, the external religion formed into what they would deem as God's laws. Listen, this can easily happen. I want to make a note of this. Over the course of time in your Christianity, time and time again, it's happened over time, rules and regulations, they might be set up maybe to initially prevent sin from happening, right? So you end up making a, 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 a rule, a regulation to protect yourself, right? But it ends up becoming its own law, and over the course of time, as it's passed down to generations, although maybe in the beginning it had good intent, we can't set up these regulations that God maybe didn't, and so this safeguarding actually becomes law. And so let me give you an example. Like, you, see, you say, to safeguard against watching TV, I'm going to say, no more TV, right? Which inevitably morphs into watching TV is a sin, 
right? And that's just how the progression works. That's how the progression worked for the Pharisees. They probably initially set this up with good intent. We want to safeguard to keep God's commands, but in, the, in turn, these safeguards ended up becoming, becoming law to them. And we have to be careful not to become reductionistic and legalistic. We want to become biblical, right? Like this is their goal. It might be messier. It might be harder to understand. It might be, it might be harder to put into play, but we, we don't want to put in rules and regulations to be reductionistic and legalistic. We want to be biblical. And so these men put a great deal of effort into outward experiences of religion without necessarily loving God with all their hearts. And listen, although the Pharisees weren't numerous, check this out. They are only probably 6,000 Pharisees at this time. They were very influential. They were unofficial religious leaders of the day, and they would soon spearhead the opposition towards Jesus. These are teachers of the law. So verse 17 says, it's the Pharisees are not only there, but the Jewish scribes, the teachers of the law. And in this incident, we would see the initial blasphemous charge against Jesus. Jesus is speaking blasphemy. This was what ultimately would send him to the cross. You know that? This would be his charge in claiming to be God. The blasphemous account of claiming to be God would send him to the cross. Look, Matthew 26, 65 through 66. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said he has uttered blasphemy what further witnesses do we need you have now heard his blasphemy what is your judgment and what they answer he deserves death and so listen these guys are here they're sitting they're listening they're calling they're about to call out blasphemy to jesus but jesus still is the distinguished one who has divine mercy and divine power to heal how do we see it well look at the very next part of this in your text The Lord was not with the Pharisees. The Lord was not with the religious scribes. The power of the Lord was not on them. It was on Jesus. He's the one. He's the one. He's the divine one. The Son of God. The distinguished one who has divine mercy and divine power, the distinguished one in God's sight. Look at this. Verse 17, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This carries over the theme from last week, right? Full display. His mercy, we've seen it. People are coming. He's got sick people in his home. Divine power, the Lord's hand is on him. We're seeing it. He's ready to heal, right? And this isn't clarified in any of the other gospels as to why this specifically says this, but undoubtedly, we see the two put side by side, the Pharisees and Jesus, to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. God's hand is upon him, and the Pharisees do not have any power. Jesus is distinguished from these jokers, right? The Lord's hand is on him. And so, after we see this, verse 18, look there. Behold, out of nowhere, some men come. In Mark's gospel, we see that there was four. And they were bringing a man on his bed, and he was paralyzed. He needed healing. These are good friends, right? Bringing a man to Jesus who had would have trouble getting to Jesus on his own. I pray that you're friends like that. I pray that you are friends to other people like that. Helping people to get to Jesus through your prayers and through your sharing of Jesus. For people who would have trouble to get to him on his own. They needed Jesus' healing touch. Look at this, the distinguished one, the divine one. With all mercy and all power, this is their only hope. They come, verse 19, they're ready to go, but the crowds probably unintentionally preventing them from getting to Jesus. But these men, because of their faith, would not let the crowd stop them from getting to Jesus. And listen, I pray that you wouldn't either. Sometimes the crowds prevent us from getting to Jesus. 
right? And I pray that you wouldn't. So listen, these four friends take them up on the roof. We're just following the story. And they're willing to do what is ever is necessary to reach Jesus. I pray that we would have faith like this. Houses at this time, here's what they look like up on the screen, right? They had just a slightly pitched roof, right? And pretty flat just to get the water to run off. But they usually had an external staircase to get up to them. And so this is probably what this house looked like at the time. And Luke, the smart one, right? He's the physician. He tells us of the tiles, probably alluding to a Hellenistic type of home. And all of this is just displayed to us to show us the effort of the men to get this paralytic man to Jesus, the one who has divine mercy, divine power, the one who can heal. Listen, here's what's happened, and here's what you need to see in this first section. All of the displays of Jesus' divinity have resulted in faith for these people. Why do you think they're coming to him for healing and power? Because they've seen his display of his divinity through his divine healing, in his divine mercy, and in his divine power. And so listen, that's why you're seeing Jesus' displays of divinity. But let me ask you, I wonder if all of these displays, after all of these weeks, after seeing all of this in his word, have they resulted in faith in your heart? Jesus is displaying his divinity to you, not for no reason, but that you would have faith in believing who he is, and that so you would go like these men in faith to get to Jesus at whatever the cost. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? Ask yourself the question right now. Through his displays of his divinity, of mercy and power, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And will you stop at nothing to get to his feet? This is what's happening here. His displays of divinity brought him to a place, brought this people to a place, and I pray it would bring you to a place. The type of seeking that this man had, they will stop at nothing to get to Jesus. I pray he would become so distinguished in your life. But listen, as they come from healing and the Pharisees are there with cynicism, Jesus is just about to take this to another level because Jesus reveals something else. Number two, what we see in our passage is that even though he's distinguished as having the divine power and mercy to heal, Jesus is actually going to display his divine authority to forgive sins. That's the whole purpose of this. Listen, he is going to display his divine authority to forgive sins, and this is what you need most. So as we keep going, look at this. Verse 20, apparently nothing was said. Isn't that awesome? Like, check that out. Verse 20, nothing was said. Seeing their faith, their action showed their faith, right? Which the scripture points to us that your fruit should display the the faith that you have inside, right? It should be evidence as to our faith. And so he saw the faith, not just of the men carrying the paralytic, but the paralytic himself. And he says this to him, look, ready? Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now this is a big deal because Jesus, his first words have nothing to do with the sickness. They have everything to do with the sin, And he uses authoritative language here. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Like, I have determined that you are now a man who has no sin. Isn't that awesome? That's what Jesus does to us when we have faith in him. This is game time. Like, Jesus has took this thing to a whole other level. They're coming in for mercy and for power, and he's talking about now all your sins are forgiven, right? And no one knows what's happening right now. Okay, so this is what's so important about this. Listen, they believed that sickness was inextricably tied with sin. 
If you're suffering, it's because you have sin. That's what they believe, especially in Palestine. Look at this, John 9, 12, right? As he passed by, his disciples, look at the question they asked. He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's what they believed. So here's what's happening. The belief that this suffering was a consequence of sin was known to all these people. And the sufferer probably had an even morbid sense of his own sin himself because he was paralyzed, like a morbid sense of sin. And for a moment, I wonder if you have such a sense of your own sin that it would even be this morbid. Like, are you so paralyzed by the sense of your own sin that you feel like death is around the corner? Jesus is about to forgive this man. He does forgive this man. He can forgive you. So look at this. Because of this connection with suffering and sin, Jesus begins by telling this man that his sins are forgiven first. Without that, the man would never maybe believe that he was fully cured. But with telling this, the Pharisees and the scribes who object to Jesus' claim about forgiveness would see through their own arguments as Jesus heals the man that Jesus indeed had forgiven the sins of this man. It would be proof. Right? That's what's happening here. So in verse 21, look at this. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to question. Check it out. And it wasn't a warm-hearted question, okay? I'll just tell you that. Like, they're not being encouraging when they're asking these questions. They say, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Remember the accusation we talked about, right? Blasphemies were sacrilegious, irreverent speech about God, punishable by death. Check it out. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to what? Death. And so this is a, a crime punishable by death. So their next question, church, stay with me. We find the point of this entire story, the whole story. Ready? They ask this, verse 21. You got it? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Ding, 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 ding. Gotcha. That's what I'm trying to show you. I'm God. I'm the son of God. I can forgive sins. I have the authority to do so because I am God. You asked the right question. That's exactly what he's aiming to do here, display his divinity through his authority to forgive sins. So he's out to prove that he's the son of God. And that's the whole point of this thing. So verse 22, look at this. Jesus perceives their thoughts. I guess they're not even saying these things out loud. They're just questioning them in their hearts, right? Which displays his own divinity anyway. Like, if he can read my mind, he's probably God, right? And so yet, here's what he does. Verse 23, he proceeds to take the humanly harder option, which is to tell the man to rise and walk in an instant. And Jesus says, verse 24, ready for this? that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The whole point of Jesus healing this man was to display what he had already done was verified true, that he had forgiven this man of his sins. And especially that the sin and the sickness was tied together, this healing would even more so show that this man's sins were indeed forgiven. Forgiveness of sins couldn't be verified, but a miracle could. And so listen, here's what Jesus is doing. He's showing them through the healing that he has the authority to forgive the sins. The healing would be the proof that he had forgiven this man's sins, that his sins were forgiven, 
and that he was the divine son of God, as he was now healed, then the Pharisees and the scribes would have to say, well, then his sins are probably forgiven too because he's healed. Now, for us, what this should show you is that you can have confidence in Jesus Christ and his authority to forgive you of your sins. Listen, church, I know that it's easy to not believe this on a day-to-day basis. I know that it's easy to say to yourself, yeah, I believed that once at a time when I trusted in Jesus for salvation, right? I received him, but it's easy to live a life as if Jesus didn't have the authority to make the final word for your forgiveness. And I want to tell you that you got to believe. He displays himself to be the divine son of God, and in that, he has the authority to forgive you of your sins, to declare you forgiven through specifically what he did for you on the cross. As you trust in him, I pray that you would come to him by faith to find divine mercy, to find divine power, and have all of your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's what he aims to do here. Believe in Jesus, that he is the authority to forgive you of your sins. And lastly, listen, we're just going to touch on number three. This progresses in our, in our, um, in our text here. Jesus' divine display of this authority shows him to be, once again, the Son of God. Look at this, verse 25 through 26. The man, he immediately rises. And the mat that he was carrying, or that was carrying him, he is now carrying it, right? He goes away, and what is he doing? He's glorifying God. He's glorifying God for all that he has done. This truly was, listen, indeed an act of God. This is displaying Jesus to be the son of God. He's coming for mercy and power. Jesus shows that he has the authority to forgive sins. He is the son of God. And in that, the people witness and see this has truly been done by God himself. They go away glorifying God. They were filled with awe. They had been in the presence of God, a typical response of being in the presence of deity. Look at verse 26. They run away and they say, look, today we have seen extraordinary things. Why? Because we've encountered the extraordinary one. Jesus, all of this is displaying he has the authority to forgive sins because he is indeed the son of God. Now, church, as we close this, we're taking the Lord's Supper today. And I want forgiveness to become a big deal to you again. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you in your seat for just a little while to ask God to expose your heart. Say, God, show me where in my life I have sinned. And I want you in your seat to allow God to reveal that to you. And I want to pray that as he does, you would cry out to him for the forgiveness that he has the authority to offer you. Maybe for the first time, Jesus, I trust you. I put my faith in you. Under your authority, please forgive me of my sins through what you have done on the cross. You can declare me forgiven forever on into eternity. Would you please do so? I look to you and you alone because you alone are the son of God. Do that in your seat. Listen, if you're a Christian, I pray that you would take this time to ask him to expose your sin to you and cry out so that you can walk away from here without the burden of your sin upon your shoulders, that you'd be forgiven. When you're done with that time, I ask you to come up. Come up these aisles here and go out the outside and take of the cup and remember that Jesus' blood is what was shed for you to receive forgiveness. 
And as you take up the cracker, I pray that you would take it and receive it in a way that, that thanks God for, for his body that was given up to you, uh, uh, for you, for your forgiveness. I pray that you would come with this reverent heart. And listen, this is for believers in Jesus. Because you can't remember one in which you've never met or that you never for, receive forgiveness from. And so I pray that you would come as believers as you take your time in your seat, either pray to receive Jesus or pray for his forgiveness. And then you would go back to your seat and you would worship in response. And here's what I want you to think about before you leave. Who in your life needs to hear that Jesus has the authority to forgive them of their sins? And who would you go tell leaving here today? Take some time in your seat and come and take up the Lord's table in light of the forgiveness that he offers. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I pray, Lord, that you would please take all of this. This is, a, this is so much text to get through in a short amount of time, so we got to just see the main point of this is that you indeed offer forgiveness. You have the authority to forgive us of our sins. Praise God for you as a son of God. We praise God that you, Jesus, came as the Son of God to forgive us. I pray that the people in this room would take some time and ask you to reveal their sin to them. But not only to reveal it, but that they would cry out to you and receive forgiveness. I pray that as we come and take up your table, that we'd glorify you in the forgiveness that you offer. Thank you for giving us this forgiveness. I pray that we would leave here today thinking about those around us who need to receive your forgiveness as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.